0: What does it take to feel comfortable speaking up? Because that is a really fragile element of any team and your backcountry team. Because as soon as somebody feels like they're going to get heckled or shamed, or the question's going to be too dumb for the audience, you are hamstring in the group. Don't misidentify or miss your near misses. So in the end, if if it's a question in your mind, whether or not it's a near miss, call it a near miss and debrief the process, not the outcome. This is Rob Copolillo, and you're listening to the Avalanche Hour podcast.
1: That's right, Rob. You are tuned into another episode of the Avalanche Hour podcast, your source for great conversations within the snow and avalanche community. I'm your host, Caleb Merrill. The Avalanche Hour podcast is proudly presented by VEASAN Avalanche Control. Safety through innovation. With additional sustaining support from Gordini, we keep you outside longer. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge, and news amongst people with a curious fascination of avalanches. Support for this episode comes from Propagation Labs. Propagation Labs is a small company from Salt Lake City, Utah that makes tools for snow and avalanche professionals to help streamline the collection, recording, and analyzing of snowpack observations. The Snowscope Probe is a digital penetrometer that can rapidly and accurately measure snowpack structure, then send the data to your phone in seconds. Use of the Snowscope keeps observations standardized and objective, Removing bias from hand hardness profiles. Reduce your uncertainty around the spatial variability of the snowpack through efficient sampling. Using the Snowscope will give you a hardness profile in less than 10 seconds, allowing you to sample snowpack structure across various aspects and elevation bands, giving you a better understanding of the big picture. The Snowscope has been tested in 24 countries by over 90 snow professionals, with over 7,000 snow profiles recorded. I got my hands on a snowscope last year and used it while ski guiding and forecasting. I often used it in conjunction with the manual snow pit. When comparing its results to my hand hardness profiles, I was impressed by the accuracy of the snowscope. Throughout the progression of the day, the snowscope helped me to save time through progressive sampling as I changed elevation bands or aspects, all while keeping an eye on the depth and distribution of a layer of concern. To find out more or to order a snowscope, check out PropagationLabs.com or download the free SnowScope app to check out the data and see the manual pit recording features. It's like a digital notebook. Even if you don't have a SnowScope probe, check out this super helpful app that's free. If you're intrigued, don't miss the full length episode featuring Joe and Garrett of Propagation Labs. It's episode 710. Today's episode features Rob Copolillo. Rob's an IFMGA guide a father of twin boys, a husband, a writer, an avalanche educator, and he has a great knack for conversation and storytelling. We're going to get into it with Rob's background in the industry here in a bit and dive into some of his thoughts on the state of avalanche education, where he's seen the lines become fuzzy between ski guiding and avalanche education. And Rob reflects on some close calls and emphasizes the need for truly debriefing the process not the outcome. But first, we're proud to highlight the support of Gordini for this season of the Avalanche Hour podcast. Brett is here to tell more about the brand and some of the product offerings. All right, I'd like to introduce Brett Wagenheim from Gordini to the Avalanche Hour podcast. Welcome, Brett. Good morning. Brett, talk a little bit about yourself and your role at Gordini.
2: Uh, Yeah, so I am the marketing director at Gordini. We are a Vermont-based outdoor gear brand, and I came on board about two years ago, though I have a long history in the outdoor industry. My parents owned a ski shop, so I knew about Gordini as a little kid. Definitely kept me warm and cozy on cold winter days on the hill growing up. And yeah, exciting to be a part of a team that is kind of doing things quietly, but doing things right. So it's been a really fun journey joining the team. We're based out of Burlington and make gloves and goggles and now socks for really any cold weather adventure. I think one thing about Gordini that is valuable for people to know is that we are family owned and operated and based out of Vermont, which, you know, in an industry where more and more of the top brands are being bought out by equity partners and investment banks. It's it's cool to know who you're buying from. Uh, we're excited to be building products that are purpose-built and, and useful for more wilderness and remote uh, travel.
1: It looks like there's some great offerings of gloves and socks and goggles from Gordini. You know, when I think about gloves that I'm going to use in the backcountry, I kind of look for, for three different types of gloves, like a a light touring glove that I won't overheat in on the up, but I can still poke around in the snow with, uh, without them getting wet. And then I look for a a beefy kind of gauntlet style glove for cold and deep days. And then I look for a low profile under the cuff style glove for kind of my everyday use as the temperatures dip down a little bit. I need some more warmth from that, from that touring glove. So I was wondering if you could just kind of, pick out three of your favorite gloves that would fit those categories.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I'm so glad you asked. Um, so with Gordini, we launched a collection that is really for backcountry users. It's called The Frontline. We built the collection um, really in conjunction with an ambassador and athlete of ours, Rafa Peace. Um, so a lot of field testing and iterations came about to build out kind of a backcountry mix and match kit. Uh, so there's a lot of different layering components to that kit. You can have a lightweight touring glove. You can have a midway, um, almost like your synthetic mid layer that you might wear um, during transitions or um, on the downhill underneath the shell. And then we have an over mitt and kind of an oh shit mitt as I like to call it, which is that big beefy gauntlet style Glove that you just keep in the back of your pack in case something goes wrong. You have a long rescue or, um, yeah, the storm rolls in and and you need to get a little bit warmer. You've got got yourself covered. So that Frontline kit is definitely, I think, built for the backcountry user. Um, And then another glove that is a a personal favorite of mine and I think aptly named is the Snow Ranger. It's an all leather, um, high dexterous glove. With a, with a fleece liner that it makes it really easy to dry out and, you know, use while you're writing in your blue book or taking notes or doing a snow profile pit. You have a lot of dexterity and warmth. And I like to cover them up in beeswax. So they're super waterproof.
1: Nice. And Gordini's kind of making a splash with their new sock line. Talk a little bit about the construction of these socks, and and it seems like there's some pretty, pretty awesome innovation here.
2: Yeah, I think one thing that I really value at Gordini is we recognize that gloves and now socks, while they're really small pieces of gear, that they truly are vital pieces of equipment in uh, the backcountry. So there's a lot of technology and innovation packed into really um, small, small products. Socks being kind of the newest uh, product line and, and um, innovation that we are investing in, and I think it's taken years to really jump into this space because it's a it's a really competitive marketplace in socks, and so I don't think any any of us uh, thought that we would ever go into the sock space until we really stumbled upon a technology um, that allowed us to see a a really different sock being built. Um, and that's a dual layer sock. So traditional socks are built as a single layer, um, single layer yarns, mixed yarns, generally speaking. Um, and our machines that we've invested in actually allow to isolate yarns to specific parts of the foot such that, um, you can isolate, a. Merino wool reinforced with nylon in the toe and heel to the external part of the sock, and then in the interior part of the sock, you can uh, isolate merino wool with either silk or poly- polypropylene or um, a moisture-wicking synthetic that is kind of your next-to-skin layer, um, and then it's welted together across the foot or across the sock at various points, so there's no slippage or additional friction, and really the outcome is a sock that looks like a, a puffy jacket or a quilted jacket. Um, there's thermal air pockets between the layers that trap heat and also increase moisture transfer out. So it's really functional for moving up the hill in, you know, high activity output. And then also allows for, yeah, just warmer, drier feet in the backcountry for long days and boots.
1: Yep, that's super important. And the and those come in like a, a lower profile, like a thinner profile, a midweight and a heavier weight?
2: So we offer four weights, uh ultralight to heavyweight. So ultralight, lightweight, midweight, and heavyweight. All of the socks also offer an inclusive fit cuff, which uh, is called orbit knit, and it's a cuff that relies on the mechanical structure of the knit to stretch and rebound as opposed to relying on elastic yarn. So it never stretches out and it fits um, really all all bodies.
1: Wow. Sounds like you all have done some really thoughtful design around these socks and it's almost mind boggling how much goes into into the thought of the
2: design, eh? <laughs> yeah, it's absolutely shocking how much you can stuff into a, a hand and foot. <laughs> <laughs> I think what is interesting about Cordini though, is that we've had This really long heritage uh, in the glove space. And we haven't really been talking about ourselves all that much, but we've just been kind of slowly doing the work to responsibly build purpose built product. And we're really starting to see, you know, that investment and that innovation come to life in some of our newer product lines.
1: So, Brett, we're Collaborating here, and I appreciate the support of Gordini for the Avalanche Hour podcast. And um, we're collaborating on a bit of a, a giveaway here for this season. So, uh, give us the details of the the giveaway. What's in this prize package?
2: Well, the prize package is going to be for uh, a backcountry skier rider. Uh, it will include a goggle, a reload goggle, which has interchangeable lenses, a Snow Ranger glove and a ski sock of your choice midweight, lightweight, ultralight, whatever whatever your boot needs are.
1: Awesome. And so we're asking listeners to snap a picture of of you doing some avalanche rescue practice and tag Gardini USA and the Avalanche Hour podcast in an Instagram post and you'll be entered to win uh these fabulous products. So um, appreciate you coming on the show, Brett, and talking a little bit about the product offerings of Gordini and happy to have you all on board and, and looking forward to some nice warm, dry feet and hands this winter. Thanks to Gordini.
2: Thank you so much, Caleb, for having us. Really excited to listen to the rest of your season.
1: Go check out Gordini.com and use the code THEAVALANCHEHOUR10 to get 10% off and free shipping on your next order. Are you an industry professional? Gain access to even deeper discounts on Gordini products through expert voice. And
0: here we go. Dropping in with Rob Copolillo. Rob, how's it going? Good, man. Thanks for having me. I'm sorry we didn't get to connect at ISSW. I kind of was scanning the room and I never saw you I never saw your badge so anyway I was only there two days so it was a it was a quick visit but yeah good to see you yeah it's kind of a, a whirlwind there you know like just running into
1: so many old friends and making new ones and yeah what a good time that was
0: hey yeah it's cool I mean just like you're saying you get in the room and all of a sudden these folks that oh yeah of course so-and-so is here it's ISSW and then You get the Euros, too, which is so cool. I met a gang from Italy who worked for their forest service. And uh, they were sitting out front talking about what to do on the day off. And they said, oh, what should we do? What should we do? You know, and I'm not from Bend. And so I just said, oh, go out to Smith Rock. Go for a hike. You know, so I don't know what they did. But of course, they being Italians, they said, well, where should we eat? What should we eat? Like they're always the Italians are always nervous about they're going to starve to death when they're on the road. So anyway, they were doing all right. But
1: yeah, yeah. Food is the love language, right?
0: Yeah, exactly. especially for Italians. Holy cow. I mean, they just are so concerned that we're all going to starve to death without, uh, like, homemade pasta, you know, so. Well, Rob, tell us a little bit about yourself. Who is Rob Coppolillo? Um. Well, I'm 53. I'm living in Seattle. I have an awesome wife and two pretty great kids. Most days, they're turning into teenagers, so they have their moments, but... Um, we got twin 13-year-old boys, and we've been in Seattle a couple couple of years now. My wife's born and raised here, um, and so she's got a whole host of old friends, and the grandparents are here and things like that. Um, but I was mainly raised in Colorado, uh, went one year at university out in Santa Barbara, grew up playing soccer, and, um, and then transferred back to the University of Colorado, ended up racing bicycles for 10 years and kind of wasted my twenties trying to be too skinny and shaving my legs and stuff like that. Um, and, uh, I, I, started writing in college as well. I just fell into the first thing I ever published actually was when Jeff Lowe organized the North American sport climbing championships on the university of Colorado campus in the event center. And, um, I was sitting in the crowd with some friends and this dude I was with, was really shy, great guy, and uh, he was nervous to talk to the climbers. And I said, well, give me the press pass. I'll go down there and interview him. You know, I'm like 19. I don't know what what I'm doing. And uh, Scott Franklin won the men's event, and uh, that was sort of his heyday. He was crushing at Smith Rock. Right around then, and um, so I interviewed him. Came back up in the stands, and my buddy said, "Well, can you just write the article?" And you know, you're 19, of course. Like I can do anything, right? So I said, "Oh yeah, oh yeah, I got this, no problem." So I got the thing published in Rocky Mountain Sports and Fitness Magazine, that has gone through a bunch of iterations, and it's uh, you know sort of let's call it the great grandfather of that um, publication now, Elevation Outdoors. And um, I got uh, the article in there. And I think they even published one of my, two of my photos as I remember it. And I made, I don't know, 125 bucks. And I was like, oh oh my God, I have arrived, you know? And so at that point, of course, I was like, I'm dropping out of school. I'm going to be a writer. This is great. My old man who was a college professor was like, no, you're not dropping out of school. So luckily I finished college, but that's what got me started writing. And I really did a ton of um, cycling journalism all through my 20s. And my first book was a little book about um, cycling. And, um, you know, but living in Boulder and luckily I was a pretty good amateur cyclist and, but I wasn't so good that I was making enough money to quit writing. And so it kept me a little bit involved in the rest of my life, climbing and skiing. And I had grown up skiing in Colorado, grown up rock climbing as well. And, um, so luckily for me, I didn't quote make it as a cyclist and, so when I finally quit racing bikes when I was 30, I had still climbed and skied a little bit. I had been forced to write that whole time to survive, barely. And um, so it kept that that little career going, which I'm happy for now, because I've been able to transfer that journalism and writing stuff over to like skiing, climbing, things like that. Um And I barely ride my bike anymore, if I'm honest, like I'll mountain bike 10 days a year. I'm too scared to ride my road bike now because everybody's got a smartphone glued to their, you know, hand. So I did that all through my 20s, started getting back into climbing and skiing in my early 30s. And, you know, like any skill you learn as a kid, you kind of still have it it wasn't just like learning from scratch, thankfully. So anyway, I got back into it and uh, just through luck found um, a pretty good mentor in my early 30s guy, a Swiss dude who has since moved back to Switzerland, Marcus Beck. And he was kind of that Swiss prototype, you know, fun guy to be with competent in the mountains, and a little bit of a hard ass, you know, I think people would agree like Freddie Gross Niklaus over in Utah, or Martin Volk, and they're great guys. But they're also like, they're pretty, you know, they're, they're on Swiss. and um, Yeah, they're Swiss, exactly. And, um, so Marcus, I mentored with Marcus for a couple of years and, and then he finally said, hey man, if you're going to do this, you should really start going through your courses with the American Mountain Guides Association. So I did my first ski course in January of 2006, seven, seven, yeah. And then I just started limping through the program and, um, uh, during that time I wrote my first book that was the little cycling one and we had twins in um, 2010 and got married in there and then I finished up the program in 2014 so that whole time I was just taking gigs where I could and trying not to starve and uh, whatever my wife was a teacher at the time now she's a social worker Um, you know so she does great she's um, really good at her job but she's also not pulling down you know 300 grand a year doing it so um uh, it was um you know i had to be conscious of not uh, you know getting going too dirtbag in the whole guiding getting through the process um uh, journey and uh, so anyway i finished in 14 and at that point i started traveling quite a bit for guiding my dads from italy and um, I knew I wanted to go work in Europe. So, you know, getting my full certification um, made a lot of sense because you can't really work over there. You you can work a little bit, but in, you know, very limited settings if you don't have your full IFMGA certification. Sure. So I started doing that and traveling. And Mikey Arnold and I went through the whole program uh, kind of roughly the same time. And we did, we did all three of our exams together. So that's like a major point of pride for me is that Mikey and I are still good buddies and we did all of our exams together and didn't freak out or kill each other in the process. So Mikey and I decided, oh, we'll we'll have all this momentum. We'll be totally in the zone. We'll just do our three exams same year. Well, we kind of just agreed upon that between the two of us. When I tell people that now, or when we got on the first exam and we said, oh yeah, I'm doing, we did our ski exam in February, On Rogers Pass in Canada. Then we did our rock exam in April in Red Rock and then Alpine in uh, the Cascades here in Washington in late September. And when we got to the first exam, I started telling people this and everybody kind of raised their eyes and said, Oh, okay. And all of a sudden it dawned on me. I was like, what, what was I thinking? You know? So, anyway, we pulled it off though, and then we started working together and um, in Canada and doing some Europe trips and things like that. And so that has really become the bulk of my work now as I travel mostly for work um, and do some avalanche instruction. I go to Canada and do a level two every year, just about. That's where I did. Um, luckily, got to work with Colin Zacharias several years. So that was selfishly on my part, you know, I just wanted to work with Colin and learn a bunch of stuff, you know? Um, and, uh, so I've done that. And now this year I'll go to Georgia skiing for the first time. That'll be really fun. And, um, I'll go back to Svalbard. That'll be my fourth year, fifth, fourth or fifth year up there. COVID just became this weird halftime in my guiding life. But, um, I think I've been five years now anyway, and we'll go back to Svalbard, do that, And then I do, like, typically try to go to Europe and work for a few weeks in the summer and then go see my uncle down south and get all chubby and come home and (laughs) hate myself for eating too much and try to lose. That's where I'm at right now. I'm, like, trying to drop this 10 pounds right now. I'm just, like, on the verge of getting lipo up here. It's terrible. Anyway, so... So Rob, you, you've you ski guided all over the world, you know, your
1: company Veta Mountain Guides. Another aspect of your career is avalanche education, right? And so I was curious, were you teaching any courses while you were in Europe or is that something that you mostly do in the U.S.?
0: You know, it tur- as it's turning out... Um... The last couple of years, what I've done is done, um, an extended level two, like a recreational two in Canada. Um, and so I just, through luck of the draw air area is really big in Colorado. Mm. So the bulk of the area, bulk of the avalanche education done certainly on the front range is, um, you know, is airy focused. And so I just fell into the airy stream early on and I was really, really lucky. Brian Lazar was living in Boulder at the time. He had just gotten out of guiding right as I met him. Um, but I got to ski with him a little bit and meet him when he was uh, getting going as a forecaster. And we've since become really good buddies. I just climbed with him down at Smith uh, during that rest day at ISSW. But he um, he was still involved in avalanche education then and then ended up the ED of Airy. So I really got in that Airy stream and met Tom Murphy that way, the founder. And that's how I met Colin Zach was um, through Airy because he was the technical director for many years. I got going and doing airy courses really early on and liked it. But over time I got to, I started to see like, man, a three day course is just too much of a fire hose. You know, it can be done really well and it's great for students. But for me, it started to feel more like an avalanche awareness experience, not like a full level one thing. So when Colin and I were working on that, uh, his draft of the curriculum, um, we sort of joked at one point, wouldn't it be cool if we had a week to deliver this thing and like went to a hut somewhere and we both kind of looked at each other like, yeah, why don't we do that? And so I sort of mustered up the courage and booked a hut and I said, hey man, I found a hut. We could do it. Are you into it? And because uh, I mean, it's teaching with Colin Zach, you know what I mean? It's like, you know, I'm like wee le- league football guy and you're asking Tom Brady to go like chuck the ball around. And uh, so I mustered up all this fake confidence and said, hey, Colin, you know, let's go do it. So we did that, I think, in um, 2017, maybe, uh, 17 or 18. Um, And it was awesome. I mean, the students had a great time. We were at this little lodge south of Nelson, which has got its own history. The dude, it turns out, had never paid taxes and the business was all kind of underground. He's this totally nice guy, but he's a bit of a kook. Um, and they have since caught up with him. He's got real tax problems in Canada anyway. So, um, but it was a great, it's great terrain, super fun. And Colin and I just had a blast and that really allowed us over the couple of years to refine that, uh, approach. And it's just such an easier task to have people in the field for six straight days. There's no driving, you know, it was a heli in and out lodge. So you're just there, you know? And it really gave the participants a chance to sort of be like, oh, this is what, you know, Caleb's doing in his day-to-day job as a heli guide. Like, wake up, you gather your snowplot and weather obs. you have a guide meeting, you talk about what terrain we're going to avoid, where we're going, what we're doing, all that. Um, And I hope, you know, over these years, these students, like, it really gives them a sense of like, oh, this is what a professional ski guide like Colin Zacharias is doing. And then they can take that home and customize it to their own, you know, because you don't expect recreationalists to do like a full guide meeting and all this. Um, But it gives them a sense of that stuff. So I have done less and less like traditional level one, level two courses um, over the last five years. And so this year, what I'm trying to do in the state of Washington is do like season long avalanche courses for folks here. And that way they really get to see the snowpack. You know, change over time and pile up over. And you know, here it's not quite as exciting as some places in Canada and Colorado, but you you do finally get to see the snowpack change, um, and a weak layer come and go. You know, um, when you're working up north, like you guys, you guys know what that weak layer is. It's got a name. It's got a date. You it, you know, but after two weeks on the job, like you're so intimately involved that you know exactly what's happening and so hopefully they get a sense of that and um so i'm trying to do that with a little gang here in um washington state and i'm just calling it the avalanche working group um because it sounds kind of cool and smart and um so there's one gent who's actually doing the full level two over the whole season in washington but he's also coming to canada to do a level two with me um at mistea lodge i'm teaching with shane robinson who's a really super smart great educator very low-key cool guy um And uh, the COVID thing kind of interrupted this. So everything just blew up. And I think I'm doing it with Colin again next year is what we've discussed. So that'll be cool. Um, But Shane and I are going to do it this year and he's great to work with. And um, he's another one of these people that you go out and work with and you just, you're writing stuff down in your notebook all day, like, oh, that's a better way to say that. Oh, that's a cool thing. Um, You know, which is kind of my jam. I love working with people smarter and better than me because then you're always poaching ideas and you get a little bit better, you know, so.
1: Obviously it doesn't fit into everybody's schedules to be able to make that sort of time commitment, but I think if you have the flexibility to take an avalanche course like that and and live it for a week or two weeks or like you're offering for a season long and gaining the mentorship of, of experienced guides, that's, that's a really good way to do it. You know, many people after taking an avalanche course are like, well, what's next? Like, how do I progress? And it's like, well, you could hire a guide. You can find mentors. And so often easier said than done. So it's really cool to see that you're offering some of that um, in a, in kind of a cool framework for the whole season.
0: That's, that's great. That was part of my thinking is like, A, it's a better outcome. I think educationally, but B, you know, the huts have gotten expensive in Canada, like everything has. And so, you know, rather than ask somebody to spend 3,500 bucks to come to a hut, do a level two helicopters, all this stuff. I just thought like, you know, all you need is a little gang, six, eight people, and you spend the whole season, I mean, Washington state, like we'll ski way into June, you know? Um, and that way they really get a sense of like how the snowpack changes, but also they get to watch that transition, the spring shed. And then we get into wet avalanche problems, you know, or more springtime, I should say. We used to say wet in Colorado because it never rained in winter. Now I'm in Washington. I have to like change my vocabulary a little bit. Um, and so I, you know, we'll see how it goes this winter. I'm hoping, you know, I don't want to get too many folks um but right now there's a little posse we were just at the park yesterday just doing some like dry land beacon stuff and you know messing around with oh multiple scenarios and you know strip, and this you know just all these terms and techniques you get thrown around or whatever so anyway well, such a big part of avalanche education is,
1: is learning a, a process, right, a risk management process uh, that become rituals. And I think oftentimes I'm challenged by trying to convey that in two or three days in a traditional avalanche course. And, and, and really, you need coached application of that process to become proficient at it. So um, I really like what you're doing there, Rob, and, and wish you the best success with that. In your mind, do you think avalanche education
0: in the current realm is effective? I mean, that's a super good question. I um Yeah, and I agree with everything you just said. Your observations are like spot on as far, you know, as far as I'm concerned. Um it it's it sure seems like avalanche education is working. Something's working, right? Because our deaths in terms of avalanche fatalities for Canada and the United States, I'm not sure in Europe, um, are pretty Mm flatlined. Like they're bouncing along at, you know, a little bit over, under this and that. But compared to, as anybody listening to this will know, like the trailheads are more crowded. You know, the retailers will tell you like, they're selling this stuff like gangbusters. It's by far the fastest growing portion of like the ski hard goods industry. Um, so all these people are getting out to some degree for better or for worse. Like we've all been to the trailhead where it's like, Oh my God, this is way too crazy. Um, but deaths aren't going up. So, you know, there's a lot of this back and forth about what's working, what's not working, but something's definitely working. Um, I don't think you could attribute it to, um, technological stuff like the transceivers are better or the airbags are working because I think adoption of airbags is still relatively low across the whole industry. Um so I would say something's working. The forecasting is better and I think, you know, as you know, the forecasters just pull their hair out trying to figure out the best ways to communicate risk and especially in a place like Colorado, where, you know, you could be a considerable on the same week layer for days and weeks at a time, you know, the public just gets sick of hearing Mm -hmm. keep, you know, take it easy, be conservative, you know, whatever. So something's definitely working. And I would think avalanche education has got to be a part of that. It can't account for all of it. So I think it's working. Um, largely the market up here is way different. For my experience of it um it's a little bit weird because it's a way different scene in the pacific northwest but it's also post-covid um and all these people like you know flocked to the backcountry during covid um i remember hearing during covid that there were no you could not find skins in salt lake mm. like they were all gone um but uh so maybe that accounts for some of the different feel of it these days, but the Pacific Northwest would, I what it feels like to me, it's way more diverse than Colorado. Um, it is generally a bit less experienced. Um, and it's, it feels like, and again, this is all like, I keep saying, I feel like, cause this is all like anecdata. I have no real data to back this up, but it feels to me like folks go to REI or cripple Creek or pro guiding here in, Um, Washington, they buy a setup and the person that sells them the setup says, oh, you should really do a level one avalanche course, which is good and bad in my opinion, because you get these folks in the parking lot that are like trimming skins or they've never put skins on their, somebody, I can't remember who it was last year, somebody in a course had trimmed and mounted the skins backwards. Mm -hmm. So... You know, they put them on the bottom of the skis and it was like, boy, these things don't glide at all. Like the tip was where the tail should be. Anyway, um, that's an expensive mistake. But, uh, you know, it's stuff like that. Whereas in Colorado, it felt like, you know, in the around 2010 to 15, when I was there teaching the bulk of the courses I was doing, um, you would get people that would show up and say, oh, I've been skiing for 15 years and backcountry for four and I feel like I should do this now. And so they are pretty darn experienced, you know, um, whereas here, the, some of these courses, it gets a little tricky cause you're doing like intro to backcountry skiing plus a ski lesson. And then you're just trying to like show some terrain and get them to Sunday night with an idea of like, you know, Hey, there's terrain you got to avoid on certain days and you got to be able to figure out what that is. Like sometimes it feels like that's what the level one becomes. Yeah. Talk
1: about the fire hose, right? Like not only are you trying to convey this information, you're trying to teach people skills just to move in the mountains. And, and um, yeah, that's a, that's a huge challenge for sure. Um, And some of it's on the student and some of it's on us as avalanche educators or guide services to, you know, I think one of the things that I've seen work really well is do a do like a level one plus backcountry skills kind of like over a couple, two, three weekends, you know, because it takes mileage to just become proficient to move. So here's a here's a question from our friend Tom Murphy. Um, he wanted to ask you, how does guiding influence your avalanche instructing or vice versa? You've been a, both a guide and an educator for a long time. And how have, how have those two disciplines kind of merged in your own, in your own practice in the mountains?
0: Yeah, that's a a good question. Um, Mm -hmm. and Murph is great because he's always asking you these questions that, are definitely they're not yes and no questions, right? You kind of mm-hmm. have to push away from the table for a sec and say, "Ooh, okay, hang on a sec." Um, and uh, yeah, I love Murph. That that is a it's an important distinction to draw between yourself as a, a ski guide and your hat as a as an avalanche instructor. And I had a um, was it two years ago now? Jeez, I can't remember. I was teaching a uh, I think it was a level two up on Snoqualmie Pass with my buddy Zach Wentz, who's a, a really high-end splitboard guide here, guide here in town. Um, and we had the last, it had started snowing on a Friday, and by Sunday midday, it was like nuking, and the conditions are pretty darn good. Um, and I got to say, coming out of, we were up on a Snoqualmie Pass below Chair Peak, coming back into um, back t- towards the cars at Alpental, And that last run, I totally lapsed and just drifted into like ski guide time. Like, let's get the goods. And we had a great run. Everybody was stoked. Everybody's hooting and hollering. And we get down to cars and it's all high fives. But as I debriefed with Zach, he was being, Zach just passed his ski exam this year. um, And he's working his way through the process. And he's a little younger than me. So Right there, there's a little bit of a hierarchy built in, and Zach was very polite, but I could tell he was, like, not quite as stoked on the last run as I was. And so I had to started pulling on that thread, and in debriefing with Zach, like, he had sort of kept it in his pants, and we got down to the cars, and it was all good, and we stuck to our mindset on the day and let the students make the decisions And I pulled up out of the, you know, over from um, Snow Lake and just saw like, whoa, it's thigh deep. We're going to charge, you know. And it's just such a rookie mistake, you know what I mean, to like let it go like that. But like working with somebody good who's willing to debrief and say, hey, man, uh, you know, maybe, you know. And so I wrote the class and I said, Hey, I gotta admit I totally made a mistake, you know? Like our mindset on the day was I think stepping out cautiously, and all of a sudden I'm like in 40 degree trees, like, you know, kind of getting after it. Um and uh, you know, it would be really easy to end the day and everybody high fives and I feel like Johnny IFMGA or whatever, but um that really brought home to me that it's a different gig ski guiding and avalanche instructing. Um and I'm sure I knew that prior to that. And now I know it again, you know, so hopefully I, I don't need quite the reminder. Um, but uh, I think guiding, you run the risk when you get a little bit of confidence guiding, you run the risk of starting to take your courses into bigger and bigger terrain. So that might be appropriate, you know, like for a Canadian level two, that's a week long Nobody wants to come up there and just hear ski 25 degrees, ski 25 degrees all day, because that's not what we do, right? It's just not, it's not how we recreate and everybody knows that on certain days you can get after it, right? So I think in that context, we can shepherd people and and you use the term like coached application. We can shepherd them into, you know, um, incorporating a bit more data, watching, you know, tracking weak layers, things like that, and gaining some confidence so that they might, decide that it's it's um appropriate and worth the risk to get into um skiing some bigger terrain. But um I think for the most part you got to really be careful if you're a guide letting that all of a sudden change your avalanche courses into a different experience. That's that's my opinion. I don't know you probably have a pretty good um I'd be curious in your feedback too cuz you've guided up in the Chugach where it's like man you must see this all the time with clients that show up and they just want to be like full throttle day one. That's what they expect. Right. Well, I think we all, no matter what the context, we
1: have a preconceived expectation of what the day is going to play out as. Right. And I think that's gotten, that's caught me before in, in seeing what I want to see in the snowpack or the terrain or the weather instead of what's there. Right. And, and I think um, in the guiding context, it's, it takes a lot of kind of front loading with, with guests, depending on conditions about what they can expect. Cause I, I you know, it's my assumption that most people come to Alaska and they, they just think they're going to be the star of their own ski movie, you know, like they're in the TGR movie in their heads and conditions might not line up for that. And we might be skiing in one of the most beautiful places on earth. But on a mellow glacier, you know. Um, so I think front-loading that expectation um, of what the day is going to look like is super important in both ski guiding and avalanche education, right? And and I think it's it's so much more empowering for students to be making their own decisions out there, and the instructor to step in if if things if the margins are getting a little too thin, or um, you know certainly stepping in if, if you're not seeing something that's, that's going on that, that you deem is appropriate. But, um, yeah, I guess those would be a couple of thoughts that I had on it.
0: Yeah. I, it must be tough in the Chugach, like maintaining that, you know, attachment to like conditions on the ground and things like that. Chamonix was the same way you get these emails from folks. And if they don't have a harness on and they're wrapping into something, they're not in Chamonix. You know what I mean? You're just like, whoa, 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 hang on. Like, let's do a glacier run here and get a coffee. Like, you know, take it easy. Um, But I think that especially once I, um, you know, got my fancy badge and maybe I'll mention Amos Whiting here because Amos is a, a good friend of mine and a mentor. He was my examiner on my rock and my ski you know, Amos had an avalanche accident years ago and Amos talks about this quite publicly. This is not, you know, anything that isn't out there. Um, and he had gotten his pin in, I can't remember 2003 or four or something like that. And then he had a fatal accident on a level two outside of Aspen. And, um, he and I, he also taught my first ski course, which I did in Aspen, uh, several years after that. Um, And I think that I've talked to a few people about this, that it's that year or two after you get your pin where I think you really got to dial it back. And Amos was great on our ski course talking about that. And then when I passed my ski exam with him years later, seven years later, you know, we talked about it again. Um, And it's that kind of emotional maturity and professional maturity for, you know, apprenticing with a guy like Amos that can just get you light years ahead. Um, but I really took that to heart and, you know, you'd find yourself feeling pretty cool with your little badge on and out there doing snowpack tests or whatever. Um, but I have definitely tried to keep an eye on that line between guiding and avalanche instruction and over, you know, I don't know when I taught, taught my first course. It's, I don't know, probably 2008 ish or something, you know, I was assistant teaching with Tim Brown and Marcus Beck and those guys, um, but over time, I would say my my traditional three day avalanche courses have gotten simpler and simpler and simpler um, over time because I just feel like I want to make I want to make the fire hose as manageable as possible if that if that is if that is a thing. Um, but I think the the guiding definitely helps at time. I think because you're in big terrain mountain guiding and that helps you bring that to your avalanche courses, you just want to make sure you're not also importing. Like you said, you're not short circuiting that student experience of doing the process themselves, deciding for themselves what an accept an acceptable risk feels like things like that. Um, because in the guiding context, that is largely what the client is paying you for. They're paying you for judgment and doing the homework, right? Mm -hmm. In an avalanche course, They need to be doing that themselves. And you're just kind of guard railing it so it doesn't get too wonky. Um, But that's what I would say to Murph. Um, Hopefully he'll listen to this. He'll give me some feedback. Right. So Rob, you highlighted some of your work as,
1: as a writer, and let's, let's dig into that a little bit more. Um, So a while ago, you and Mark Chauvin wrote or co-wrote the mountain guide manual, um, which has a ton of great information. And then several years ago, you came out with the Ski Guide Manual, Advanced Techniques for the Backcountry. Um, and I got to say that I think the title is a little bit misleading because there is so much good information in here for the avid backcountry skier, no matter you know if you've been doing it for a year or 10 years or more. I appreciate how your writing style is super approachable, funny, and, and conversational. You know, like I feel like um your personality comes out in your writing and and it's it's a it's easy to read and it makes sense right you take kind of a linear approach to approaching any day in the backcountry and then build upon some basic uh decision making uh framework you know you you tie into a lot of the airy curriculum in here but then you go further um Another thing that I really appreciate about the book is how many other voices from the industry you've included, right? Like little segments from other IFMGA guides, snow scientists, you know, like researchers. Um, There's a lot there. So, so what spurred you to write the ski guide manual?
0: Well, I mean... When Chauvin and I started, so Mark Chauvin lives in North Conway, New Hampshire. Great, great buddy of mine, mentor. Um, He taught my ice course, my alpine course. Uh, Maybe one other. Anyway, um, and Chauvin's a lunatic. I mean, he in the best way. He's so fun to be around. He's always thinking. Um, He's always, he's just by nature. He's a tinkerer. You know, he can't. Look at something without saying, like, oh, what would happen if I moved this to there and then see if that worked, you know? Um, So I really hit it off with him and I just love taking courses um, from him. And um, so the ski guide book really came out of the mountain guide book. So Mark and I did the mountain guide book, uh, it came out in 2017. And that was, he was just starting to slow down. I don't know if Mark's 65 yet. He might be 65. Um, He was just starting to slow down with teaching guiding courses, you know, guide instruction. Um, And I saw him at one of the AMGA meetings one year and I said, you know, he told me, "Ah, I'm not going to do as many AMGA courses this year. I'm going to start, you know, slowing down a tiny bit. And I said, oh, well, it's time for you to write a book. And... He kind of laughed and walked away. And I think he said, I think he asked maybe Silas Rossi, he said, that Rob guy, you know, said we should write a book. Was he serious? And I think Silas said to him, yeah, yeah, no, he's a journalist, you know, and uh, he knows what he's doing. And um, which I had Silas partially hoodwinked at that point. Um, and, uh, so Chauvin, I saw him the next night he goes, Hey, were you serious about doing a book? I said, let's do it, man. And so I wrote up a proposal and this, that, and the other thing, sent it to Falcon guides and boom, they bought it like right then. So I called back Chauvin. I was like, dude, we sold the freaking thing. Now we got to write it. Like, what are we going to do? And so, but over time, over like a couple, three months, like the book came, you know, into focus. And then we met in the cascade, shot a bunch of the photos up on Shucks and, And that's really how the the mountain guide manual got going. And then within, you know, a week or two of starting to write though, we recognize like we can't do a ski book. It's this thing's going to be 600 pages. It's going to, you know, crack us. We can't do it. And Chauvin doesn't ski guide that much anyways in North Conway. You know, they're skiing, but it's not the bread and butter of his work. So the ski book really came out of the fact that we didn't do a ski section in the mountain guide manual. And... So by then I had started working with Colin and I just thought, Hey Colin, I got this idea for a book and we talked about doing it together and this and that we outlined a little bit here and there, but Colin being Colin, like he's just always in high demand. Right. And it, that fall that we needed to write the bulk of it. He was like the risk management guy for the, um, eco challenge in Fiji. I mean, that's what Colin's doing. You know what I mean? He's like jet setting. So anyway, he helped get the idea off the ground and I had already, had we done a level two by then? No, we had not done a level two yet together, but I knew him pretty well and had hired him when I was going through the program. I had gone to Canada twice to train with him. So we were buddies. Um, but anyway, he helped me get some idea of what was going to happen with it. And then um, when we moved to Europe, I like sat down in September and wrote it from September into January. And so I had all that time. And I had been lining up all these people, like you say, like Carl berkland has got a little sidebar in the book. Um, Sheldon Kerr is in there. She had great things to say about uh, communication and things like that. Brian Lazar helped with the snowpack chapter. So I had been sort of pre-rigging these people saying like, Hey, I'm going to need your help. And um, this, that, and the other thing. And, um, and uh, so it, uh, when did I send that? I sent that January of 2020 and it came out that fall. So really, in a way, COVID kind of helped it because all these people all of a sudden wanted to be backcountry skiers. Everybody was just like locked down and dying for something to read or whatever that next winter. Um, And, uh, you know, people were starting to get back out there again, but we were still kind of dealing with COVID when the book came out. And um, so that really helped it. And uh, but like it's funny you mentioned the titles because Chauvin and I went round and round and round about the titles. And in the end, the publisher really has the say. I mean, if you're Michael Lewis or something, sure, you get to name it whatever you want. But like, you know, for me, come on. I'm like, you know, JV uh, writer here. You know, they're just like, dude, you're happy to have a book. Um, And so they decided ultimately on the Mountain Guide Manual. And then Chauvin and I really put up a fight. We were like, it can't be called the Mountain Guide Manual because it's so arrogant. You know what I mean? It's like, it's the book on, you know. Like what are, what's going to happen when the French see this, the Swiss see this. It's like not the mountain guide manual. It's a mount, you know? So anyway, we went round and round about it. But once that title was out, the mountain guide manual, I've toyed with some ideas about the other book. But in the end, Falcon was like, "Now we'll call it the ski guide manual. And then it'll be like consistent and all this. But honestly, I think you're right. I think some people see it and they're like, well, I'm not a ski guide. I don't need that freaking thing. So I've tried to like send the book around and get it reviewed here and there or whatever, just to get it out there that it is for really what both books are for is to have these guiding techniques when applicable filter into the recreational world. And the ski guide manual, you know, it's funny, Scott Shell, who runs NWAC up here, at the Northwest Avalanche Center, Scott was saying like his big thing was like, if we could, if we could just get our readership, you know, the consumers to act like pros, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. so that's what the ski guide manual is all about is taking some of that professional level stuff you guys are probably using up in the chugach at your Heliop, and you know what colin zach is doing at cmh and what i'm trying to do down here in in uh, the cascades things like that incorporate you know regular observations watching the snowpack change good communication amongst your team um, try to adopt a mindset and then how to like do this repeatable process you've used that term a couple times what is the process how do we repeat it each day and getting recreationalists to adopt that in some streamlined version so then when they go recreate it's a safer more enjoyable activity you know that's kind of it yeah i
1: like that you mentioned scott shell there and we, we should also mention a a great book, uh, that he and Martin Vulcan and Margaret Wheeler wrote, uh, as kind of a precursor here, uh, the back skiing skills for ski touring and ski mountaineering. Uh, definitely another book folks should check out in writing this book. Like what, what section did you enjoy the most kind of diving into? And, and maybe this leads into some, some future work that you're interested in.
0: Yeah, we, um, it's funny you mentioned Martin's book. I brought Martin a copy of my book one day in the shop up here in North Bend, and he was standing there with some guests. And I walked in and I had signed it, you know, whatever. And I had hired Martin to help me with some Alpine prep when I was going through the program. He's a great buddy now, and uh, I admire him respect him, but he's, you know, become like more of a friend now, less of a mentor, which is cool. I don't work for him. Um... Very often I've worked a couple trips, but I walked into the shop and he was with some customers. I didn't want to totally interrupt, but they all kind of look at me and I had a book, and I said, "Martin, I brought you a book. It's the second best book on backcountry skiing you can buy." And I handed it to him and walked out. But Martin's book is great, and I kind of envision the ski book is starting where Martin and Scott and Margaret's book ends. You know, they've got a lot of like foundational material in there that all of us need to know, and like why try to improve that? I think they're actually doing a second edition of that book right now with like color photos and everything. Oh, cool. Um, and so my book, I, th- I really envisioned it as taken off from where theirs ended, you know? Um, but in writing it, the, uh, you know, I did loosely use the idea of like a day of ski touring um, or a season of ski touring is kind of the model for that. And I had such a strong background in airy avalanche um, education that some of that, that stuff filtered in. And I know when Lynn reviewed the book in the Avalanche Review, she said that was a little bit for her because she's not an airy person. She was like, it was a little heavy, the airy stuff. Uh-huh. But the chapter I enjoyed the most was decision making. And so that's why like Kelly McNeil's work really appealed to me down at ISSW. I didn't get to meet her and talk to her, but Pascal Hagley's work um, and Anne St. Clair is doing great uh, stuff with this too. Um that has been the most interesting aspect coming out of avalanche stuff. And I credit Tom Murphy a lot with incorporating a bunch of these outside influences from like aviation, special forces, medicine, things like that. And trying to incorporate some of their ideas. So I really enjoyed the decision-making chapter and it, but it just got out of control at one point. It was, I think in the end, I think it's 17,000 words at a certain point. It was like way over 20. And I was like, dude, you got to (laughs) stop. Um, but it is, it's, it's definitely a newer cognitive psych and decision-making and things like that. It's definitely a newer branch of psychology and things, social sciences in the overall, um, in academia. But I think within avalanche science, you know, um, you know, it goes back to the nineties, Fred stone and Fessler talking about human factors and things. And then Dr. McCammon talking about heuristic traps in early two thousands. Um, but it's funny because I swapped some emails with Dr. McCammon last year and he said, you know, when I wrote those things, those papers in in the early 2000s, I thought people would take them and run with them. And we haven't done that much with it. Um, And so the next book I'm sort of thinking about pitching would be more of a general interest thing, not just for backcountry skiers, because I'd like to make some money. Um, And uh, if I could sell it to like the business community, then you're set, you know. But um, I would love to do a book on decision making. that was a little bit uh, more broad. So it, it would include things like the physiology of it. Hmm. You know, how do you calm yourself down when you're like amped? Um, and I speak from experience, you know what I mean? Like when I'm leading and I'm scared, I'm like totally guilty of, you know, I get tunnel vision. I start, you know, wasting all this effort, you know, trying to find the perfect move instead of just getting through, you know, all these kinds of things. But decisions are often the same way. You know, if you've you know, watched an actual avalanche incident occur, people are like, they go from zero to 10 instantaneously. And that, you know, all the, somewhere I read the other day, like if you're in a highly stressful situation, you should just assume that your IQ is 20 points lower, right? Um, You know, it's little things like that. So how do you actually um, recenter yourself physiologically, like from a neuroscience perspective, stuff like that. And I haven't seen a ton of, There's a book. Oh God, what is it called? My friend, Sean Lynn gave it to me anyway. Um, it was written by a former police officer and he goes into a lot of this stuff, but he's very much in the sense of like, um, police and special forces, like almost combat decision-making, but he has a bunch of stuff in there about, um, physiology that books now 10 or 15 years old. Like that field has changed so much. So I would love to incorporate a broader look at decision-making. Um, from both like a cognitive psych, psych, perspective, a physiologic perspective, but also from a team perspective, because I think for us in our industry, at least we benefit from often, almost always not, not always, but often having the luxury of being able to call a timeout, right? Whereas special forces or medicine, you don't get that, right? Like bullets are flying or blood is pumping or whatever is happening. Um, yeah, we can kind of, we can set our pace in the mountains. Yeah, I mean, heli-guiding, what you do sounds, I haven't done any of it, it sounds stressful to me, because once the rotors are flying, like the dollar bills are going out the window, um, you know, it's a little bit of an accelerated pace. But, you know, that said, you could call a timeout and say, like, this doesn't seem smart, hang on. So, but there is that pressure. Whereas backcountry skiing, you know, the uptrack is often one to four hours long, you know? So you have a lot of time to gather your thoughts. And if you're at the top of the run feeling rushed, it's probably because you didn't do your homework, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, I think there are some aspects of decision-making that mountain guiding and, um, you know, can inform. Because we do have this, we're working with a population that's there to have fun, right? And most of the time, doctors, special forces... Um, folks can't say that aviation it's different. I think we're all back there in the metal tube, just like watching the Jason Bourne movies, not not thinking about what's happening in the cockpit. Um, but, uh, I think it would be interesting to flesh out some of that stuff. And there's a lot of people doing really cool actual research on it. I don't consider myself by any means a researcher on the, like, like Dr. Hagley or something or Anne St. Clair, um, but I think there's enough people doing that stuff that you could tell a story, kind of like a Michael Lewis type book, that type of writing, you know, like telling a story and illuminating some, uh, you know, some kind of cool topics, but it's always more fun in the version of like a ski story or an aviation story or something like that. So that's kind of where I'm headed with it. We'll see. Nice. We look forward to seeing
1: what you come up with and, and who you collaborate with. Maybe some, some folks are listening right now that'll reach out to you. Um, speaking of stories. Let's, uh, let's kind of dive into some lessons learned throughout your career in, in terms of the backcountry skiing and avalanche context. Any watershed moments or, or kind of like pivotal experiences, involvements in avalanches or near misses that have kind of changed the way that you operate in the mountains?
0: Yeah. I mean, that's the... You know, that's where the learning's at, right? I, I read this great <clears throat> description the other day of artificial intelligence, and it said it's note it's notable that artificial intelligence and machine learning is not learning from the successes and the right answers. It's learning from the wrong answers, right? And so I think um I think uh these near misses are where the gold nuggets are. Um and You know, one of the things that's really interesting is often on these level twos in Canada, the first day I'll ask folks, Hey, what were your last two near misses? And if they can't think of those pretty easily, you know, I just suggest, I mean, who knows, you know, there's people that haven't skied or maybe they're just really good at it or whatever, but I suggest maybe you're not identifying them quite as accurately as, as you should. Um, so for me, like the near misses have been many. Um, and luckily I've had one little avalanche involvement. It wasn't me. It was my client. And we were on this little moraine below sorcerer lodge. And so luckily it was a size one and she just kind of, but it was a slab. Like it was not just a slough where she got knocked off her feet. I mean, um, and she, it broke right under her. She sat down on it, wrote it right down to me and uh, just stood up. And that was the end of it. Um, but you know, had it gone bigger, like it could have easily, she could have gotten hurt, blown up her knee or something like that. Um, so luckily that's my only like direct involvement with an avalanche incident. Um, but you know, the near misses, like I wrote a near miss case study for the avalanche review several years ago where it was a great day of skiing. I was with two less experienced partners. Um, and it was early season. It was in Colorado up on a, a, a little feature called the Citadel up near Loveland pass. in this, this particular run called Snoopy's and we dug a pit at the top. I went down in the start zone, had my guys watch me felt pretty good. We hadn't had avalanches in several days, but the wind was blowing. There was new snow, did an ECT. in what I thought was a representative spot, no result filled in the pit, went back up to him. Oh, I think we're set. We get great hero turns, boom, ski out to the car. High fives. Well, I get home and who is called, um, but my friend Brian Lazar, okay, so who is the deputy director at the Colorado Avalanche Information Center. And he said, hey, I saw a video, you, you know, one of your buddies shared on Facebook. Ah, cool. And he says, how'd you feel being on that slope? I said, I felt great. And I was skiing good and this and that and whatever. And we talked a little bit about the process. And then he said, well, because there was an avalanche in the next drainage over, same aspect, same elevation south of you. And there's an avalanche just north of you, same aspect, same elevation. So all of a sudden there's like silence on the phone. So I'm processing this. Brian being Brian, he's pretty low key, you know, was just sort of volleying that ball back over the net. And uh, so I had to sit there and think about it. And so we chatted about it and got into near misses and this and that. We actually went touring up there a couple of days later and poked around or whatever. And in the end, it was one of those things where it was like, how close were you to the line? Wasn't really sure. But had I just gone back to the car, high-fived my buddies and driven home, it it becomes what Daniel Kahneman calls a safety signal, right? If you get the wrong feedback enough times, it becomes a safety mm-hmm. signal. So pushing it on a slope early season with shallow faceted snow becomes a safety signal. Um, you know, and Brian's job as a friend, but also as you know one of the directors of the CAIC is to you know, push the public to kind of maybe reevaluate some of these choices in life. So that was a big one for me in that sense for two reasons. One, like it was a near miss that I could have easily, um, I I call it a near miss. One of the guys I'm skiing with was not quite, he's pretty experienced, was not quite as um, willing to call it that, but whatever. Um, That was the first one. Like don't, don't misidentify or miss your near misses. So in the end, if, if it's a question in your mind, whether or not it's a near miss, call it a near missed and debrief the process, not the outcome. That's the huge thing from Annie Duke's book is debrief the process, not the outcome. So even if the outcome's great, we skied hero, snow, high five, drove home. Um, you go back to the process. Like, what did I miss? Things like that. And what are some good questions that you ask your
1: touring partners or your guests in, in debrief after skiing to kind of tease some of that out?
0: Yeah. I mean, that was the one thing, like maybe our debrief could have been robust with my two friends. You know, Brian was kind of like, yeah, let's revisit this. But often I'll say like, when were we, when were we in the most hazard? That's a good one. I think, um, is there anything we could have done to mitigate that hazard? Like, do we do, we got away with it, but we took a shortcut. Like, could we have not taken the shortcut and still had a good day? Um, you know, one of my buddies who's in the air force. They do this thing where they do, uh, a, a debrief or sort of a, you know, but it's, it's longer term. They do this once a month or once every six months, they do start, stop, stop, start, continue. So the person sits in the middle, I would get in the middle of the circle and all rank goes away. So it doesn't matter if I'm the guy in charge, everybody gets to say what they want to say without repercussions. And everybody goes around the circle and says to the person in the middle, stop doing something, start doing something, and then continue doing something. So you're ending on a positive. That one I think can be pretty cool. If you're with people that you trust and you have a good rapport with, like your first time out touring with somebody, it's a little bit in your face to say, stop doing this, start doing this continue, you know? Um, But that one, if you're with a good team that has like good communication patterns, I think that one can be really cool. Um, And um, often a really good one is to say to yourself, if we were to come back out tomorrow and do this exact same tour, what would we change? And if you change anything, that's probably an admission in a way that, ah, we could have done this better. Like we could have gone up the ridge instead of stayed in the trees or we could have done it, you know, X, Y, or Z, whatever. Um, I think that's a pretty good one. Um, But that debrief thing leads me to like that second kind of insight from that day, which is the team you're skiing with or working with, to me is your best defense against bias creeping in and doing something dumb um, and that's easier said than done because we all talk about teams and leadership and team building and all this stuff and it's easy and there's books out there and all this but like I was just looking at a buddy's, um, uh, Richard Bothwell does that thing called slab lab you know. And he, I was just reading his uh, report going into this next year. And there were several places where it was encouraging people to speak up within their teams. And we got to chatting down at ISSW about what does it take to feel comfortable speaking up? Because that is a really fragile element of any team and your backcountry team. Because as soon as somebody feels like they're going to get heckled or shamed or the question's going to be too dumb for the audience, you are hamstring in the group. Because just like Ken said in your podcast, um, as soon as the newbie or the person who feels less experienced can't speak up, you've just cut off all of that potential observation, um, insight, intuition, things like that. And that is so important. And so I think that having a great relationship with Brian and Brian knowing that he can tell me something and I'm not going to freak out on the phone and go like, ah, you know, what do you know? Shut the, you know, whatever. That's, you know, a quality I have, I hope. And I try to cultivate that. But also Brian having the kindness and wisdom to be able to phrase something that's like, Hey dude, that, you know, what he's really saying is I think you might've blown it today, Mm -hmm. but he calls up and just gives you enough breadcrumbs. You follow it and kind of do it. You know, he has, he has that nice skill. Um, But if you're skiing with a person or chucking bombs with a person or jumping out of the helicopter with somebody that you can't speak up to, that is a huge red flag. And it's not always easy because we're often employees or junior members of a team or something like that. But so we don't have the luxury of just saying I quit or walking away or something like that. But if you find yourself in that situation, that to me is, man, that is almost the first big red flag and the biggest red flag for me, because Kahneman will say this. Um, uh, there's a writer named Dr. Maria Konakova. She writes on high stakes decision-making. She's got a book called confidence game and another one called mastermind. Um, they all say that it's way, way, way easier to identify bias and errors in others than it is in ourselves. Mm-hmm. And it makes sense, but they have like the actual hard data like Dr. Hagley would want. Um, they have the hard data to ba- to back it up. And I've seen that enough places now that I'm way less confident that I'm going to catch myself in a problem than I am, you know, Caleb's going to speak up on a tour and say, hey, Rob, I know this is like, we're up in your terrain up here outside Alpental, and I'm just a visitor. But what I'm kind of seeing is this. That to me is what's going to save you way more than any sort of Jedi level, like decision-making on my part. That's just the sad reality of it. So, you know, I'm sure at the Chugach, um, in the Chugach, you guys probably have like a pretty high functioning team and you guys can speak up and sometimes even tempers get heated, but then later it's like a high five and you dial it back and everybody goes home a friend, you know? It reminds reminds me of something that I've heard Margaret
1: Wheeler say, and I don't know if this is hers or if she borrowed this somewhere, but um, culture each strategy for breakfast, right? So like and it's it's an important reminder to look within our own teams, whether that's personal backcountry recreation or if you're in an operational guiding setting or a ski patrol is like really taking a hard look at what what sort of culture is fostered in that organization or within that friend group and and have the hard conversations before you're in the backcountry to kind of like know each other's triggers and and like personal red flags that's another way of saying it. if we're going out skiing together you know i might be like hey rob like this is a tendency that i have and i'm working on it but um i want you to call me on it if you see it out in the backcountry cuz this could affect our decision making you know
0: yeah that yeah that is I mean, having that conversation with a partner going into this, um, going into the season or work week or something like that, like asking him, how do you handle disagreements? Mm -hmm. You know, that, that quote that Margaret has, that's a Peter Drucker quote. He's a business guy. And one of the other ones Drucker has is, um, I think this is Peter Drucker, um, is there is no decision until there's a disagreement. Meaning like just high five unanimity, everybody like rad, let's charge that in and of itself can be a bit of a red flag, right? So if like we go out and Caleb speaks up and says something like we ought to probably entertain that, right? And uh, managing those disagreements. I mean, we're doing a really complicated activity in a changing environment where the consequences are death. Like you should be having disagreements, right? It's not, we're not deciding what, you know, dishware to have on the table when friends come to dinner right who cares what the decision is you can eat on paper plates everybody's going to be having a good time um you know and so that that to me is where my interests are right now and that to me i hope is what i've learned over the last 10 or 15 years being in the backcountry is you want to be out there with the person that's going to call the time out and interrupt your flow you Mm -hmm. know um and so that's you know of my near misses, you know, you look back and even that little incident I had the, the, the one day I got this, she was so nice about it. She was a trauma surgeon from the West, Western slope of Colorado. And I kept apologizing and talking to her. And she was finally like, dude, I do trauma surgery, like taking a small ride in an avalanche is no big deal. But I mean, to me, it was a huge deal. I was freaking out, you know, she was so gracious about it, but I will, I looked back and they, they I had a practicum in the group that day. And later, you know, I just asked him, I said, you know, how did it seem to you? And, you know, did you feel okay speaking up? And he was a little bit on the fence and this, that, and the other thing, but it's really that hierarchy is often your enemy. You know, we all love being the cool dude with the badge on the jacket. Great. But as soon as you got that badge on the jacket, you know, the new kid on the block may not speak up. And I think that's a huge disadvantage, you know, in certain cultures. Um, And so I think like embracing these near misses is kind of, it's really on the leaders in the groups to do that and be the first one to speak up when it comes to accountability. Like I blew it today, like that was not smart. And so I tried to do that when I, you know, kind of strayed from our mindset with Zach on that avalanche course, I tried to go, you know what, dude, I just realized I totally, you know, blew it. And, you know, I hope that gave Zach a little bit more uh, willingness to report his near misses with me, but also to some person he's mentoring someday or whatever, you know? So,
1: yeah. And a lot of this is easier said than done. It's, it's easy to give it kind of lip service and, 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 um, it's just, it, it's impressed upon me how important it is to surround yourself with supportive people and that you all believe in this. Right. And, and that's not always going to be the case. And unfortunately, like I don't ski with some of my best friends because we just, it's just the magic isn't there. And, and, um, that's the harsh reality, but you know, you got to find, like you said, these are big decisions that we're making, it's high stakes and, and, uh, we should take it seriously. So I appreciate those thoughts and I appreciate you sharing that, that, um, experience with us, Rob, um, where can, where can people find the book, the ski guide manual, like, uh, the big A or, or there's some better <laughs> local places that we can support our local yeah. bookstores.
0: Well, first of all, everybody needs at least two copies, right? because I mean come on your partner can't sleep you hand it across the bed to him if he's not a skier it's 300 pages of Ambien right there dude (laughs) no um (laughs) you can't you certainly you can find it on Amazon of course but I you know I try to gently nudge people to maybe go find it down at the ski shop or REI often has a couple copies of each of them um, like in Seattle, I know Elliott Bay is like the big fancy private bookshop up on Capitol Hill. So they I, when I'm in there, I usually go check to make sure they have one copy of each. Um they're out there at like smaller booksellers. Um like Cripple Creek Backcountry had them online uh the last couple winters. I hope they do again this year. Um but yeah, try to find it at like your your favorite gear shop or little local mom and pop bookshop. That'd be cool. Um, but Amazon definitely has them. Um And a funny story, I have two of the nicest reviews I got on the ski book. One of them is from, um, you mentioned that Peter Drucker quote. One of them is from the Peter Drucker Society in England. And the way this woman found the book is, she called me up and we did a little short uh, interview on a podcast because she was surprised to, she's a business person, but also a skier. And she had read a Peter Drucker quote. She said, oh my gosh, this is so cool. There's a Peter Drucker quote in a ski book. But her husband had ordered the book mistakenly, thinking it was a different title. Okay, fair enough. So now it's just sitting on the, the his nightstand. and He's like, ah, I got the wrong book. What's this thing? He sets it down. Well, then a few weeks later, the poor guy gets COVID and he's bedridden for like four days. So he reads it and says, hey, honey, you might actually like this, hands it to her and she reads it. So anyway, um, but uh, yeah, they're out there. Um... And, uh, you know, hopefully you can find it at your local ski shop. If you can't track me down, I'll send you one. I got a couple in the basement and, uh, I'll even autograph it for you. And, and, uh, if you want me to, some people don't want, it, don't want an autograph in there, but. Well, great. Well, Rob has been great kind of sitting
1: down and chatting this morning. Um, yeah, thanks for all your work with, with the guiding that you're doing and the education and, and also all the work that you've put into Uh, The ski guide manual and the mountain guide manual and looking forward to seeing what you come up with next for sure
0: well thanks a ton for having me i mean i'm like the avid um super binge listener you know driving to canmore or something i'll load up six or eight episodes in a row if i've missed them and just like go the full caleb merrill avalanche hour deep dive um i appreciate being on and uh look forward to touring with you at some point somewheres and everybody listening as well. So appreciate it, and uh, thanks for the help. And everybody have a super season. We'll see you all out there.
1: All right. Cheers, Rob. We hope you enjoyed our conversation. Before I dip out, I just wanted to mention some upcoming Snow and Avalanche workshops as well as some scholarship and research grant opportunities. Um, so today, actually, November 8th, Thursday to November 8th, Montana State University Snow and Avalanche Workshop Is going down in Bozeman, Montana. I think it starts around two o'clock and goes through the evening. On Saturday, November 10th, the South Central Alaska Avalanche Workshop is in Anchorage. Um, And on November 10th and 11th, Saturday and Sunday, the Northern Rockies Snow and Avalanche Workshop is going down in Whitefish, Montana. And on November 18th, the Northwest Snow and Avalanche Workshop will be happening in Seattle. And on December 2nd, the Eastern Snow and Avalanche Workshop will be happening in Freiburg, Maine. Um, so check those out if you can't attend in person. A lot of times there's a virtual option and a lot of times they're recorded so you can you can drop in uh, at a later date. So check that out. There are also some upcoming grant and scholarship deadlines for avalanche education scholarships through the A3. These are mostly uh, pro Avalanche Education Scholarships. The Vison Avalanche Education Scholarship is the next deadline, and that is on November 15th. Vison offers two scholarships for pro and affiliate members of the A3, and one of these scholarships is offered exclusively to applicants belonging to an underrepresented demographic in our industry. Um, there are other scholarships out there, and as well as uh, uh, research grants. So check out AmericanAvalancheAssociation.org to find out more. All right, all right. I know we went a little bit long here today. Appreciate y'all sticking around with me. Uh, Music on today's episode featured the tracks 40-something and Anvil from Ketza. Find more of Ketza's tracks at Ketsa.uk. Artwork was created by the one, the only, Mike T. Thanks, Mike. Check out more of his work at MikeT.com. If you're a fan of the show, tell a friend. Rate and review the show on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Shoot us any feedback to the Avalanche Hour podcast at gmail.com and give us a follow on Instagram and Facebook. We are at the Avalanche Hour podcast. Make sure to tune in next week, Wednesday, November 15th, when Dom Baker interviews the godfather, Mike Douglas. This one you're not going to want to miss. Till next time, stay tuned, stay safe, and always have fun. Cheers.